0: Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For any of you that have not heard any of my messages, I just briefly want to explain to you how I will be sharing this message. There is a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow God to speak through us his word to one another. And that is what I will seek to do, is to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me, to you as an individual, and to the corporate body of Christ around the world. A word that is not just my words. How does this happen? It happens when we enter into a state of worship while we are preaching so that the Spirit of God can rise up through us and bring forth words that are beyond ourselves, that are coming from the Spirit of God. In Revelations, chapter 19, John the Apostle is prostrate before the angel, and the angel says to him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God, For The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What testifies of the reality of who Jesus Christ is and glorifies Christ is what comes out of the spirit of God, is the oracles of God, which is known as the spirit of prophecy. How does that happen? By worship. Remember that Elijah, when he was about to give a word from God to the king, first called for the minstrel to play and to dance before him with music so that he would be caught up in worship. And so I will seek to minister this day out of a consciousness of worship. I do not prepare an outline with a message. What I do to facilitate speaking what God would be saying to the body of Christ for this particular hour is the casting of lots on any chapter of the Word of God during the week. Almost every day of the week I do that. That means there's an equal chance to get any particular chapter each day. I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour and also make notes in that half hour. Other things that I do in the Word, I spend another hour on. But this is particularly what I use and Anything that I take reference from is from the notes I've made for this past week. And so that is where I am coming from on this message. I don't have anything but the commentary I made on the various chapters that I received this week. I'm not even sure which chapter I will begin to speak to you from that will be the theme chapter. So I want to begin to share, first of all, the various passages I received this week. The first one was Psalm 19. So I'm going to turn to Psalms chapter 19 here first. Turn to Psalms chapter 19. And this isn't a long passage, so I think it would be fine for me to read it first. I will read it in the King James Version. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now I'm just going to briefly touch on this passage as I want to share the various chapters I received this week. And so we see in the first part of the psalm that the Son The rising of the sun is likened unto the Lord Himself, who is also referred to as the Son of Righteousness and one of the minor prophets, S U N, which is uh, typifying God. The Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings, the wings being the radiating influence of the sun that brings life, that brings healing, that brings health. And so it is that from God emanates what? First of all, incredible energy and power. And out of this energy and power emanates tremendous light. In fact, it says of God that he dwells in a light that is unapproachable because it is totally pure. So what in the natural realm generates energy, generates light, electricity, a negative and a positive? When there is the negative that is connected with the positive, as we know, the electrons that spin around the nucleus of the atom and form a hard shell are pulled out of that orbit and there is a flow of energy towards the positive from the negative that generates in a light bulb great light and this also has a picture in it in the natural realm that reflects the far greater spiritual reality of who God is God in this passage in verses 1 to 6 is likened to the Son, in which the sun has as its tabernacle creation. And so God has created all things for his pleasure, so that he can enjoy his creation. As it says in Revelations, for all things were created, for thy pleasure were they created. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure were they created. There is a song that we sing called, Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were all created. But back to this reflection in the natural realm of the negative and the positive. In light, what brings forth this light in God is the quality of His being, which is an ultimate perfection of love. Which is manifested, as it were, in a negative that therefrom results in a positive. What is the negative? It is the integrity of God's love. Now, I could go in and define love, but I'll just briefly define it here. Love I'm talking about is what is known in the Greek, in the New Testament, for the word love is agape. It is a love that is not merely filio, that involves emotion and feeling, but is beyond that. It is the most pure and highest form of love, which is a love independent of whether there is feeling or not, that chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal choice of gratification. Anything that would be less than choosing the highest lasting good would have corruption within it. God's love is perfectly pure. It has ultimate integrity and purity to only choose the highest lasting good, and as such, his quality of being is, as it were, a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed, or action that would be contrary to his love, that would violate the integrity of his love. And so our God is known and described in both the Old and New Testament as a consuming fire. A consuming fire of incredibly pure love that will not tolerate corruption. And if God tolerated corruption, he would no longer be God because he would have a destructive principle within him that over time would cause himself to self-destruct and the whole universe. He is God precisely because his quality of being is without corruption, because his love has absolute pure integrity. This is what we know as the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of God's being of love. It is symbolized in the natural realm as the negative symbol. Which represents cutting off corruption, cutting off all that is contrary to love, that also represents foundation as this horizontal line. Foundation that is incorruptible, from which can spring forth creativity that is without corruption and therefore can ever enlarge and expand in realms of greater creativity and greater enlargement of fulfillment, going on without end. Because God is holy. And from this foundation springs the positive symbol which represents that this love is so pure and so ultimate that it is manifested not only in ultimate perfection but in a perfection that is ultimate. In that without violating the integrity of his love, he can bring forth free will beings that are the source of their own action, that choose of themselves, that have free choice, and provide a way for them who have rebelled against his love to be reconciled back to him, so that the creator can have a quality that is without corruption and yet free will beings that he can provide destiny to. He didn't create us as robots or there wouldn't be anything that would be worthy of existence. In fact, the very being of God is love, so why would he create machines that he can't have fellowship with? God has created us as the source of our own action, with our own free choices, because it allows us to love, to have fellowship with God. But therein is the potential, because we are the source of our own choices, for hell and heaven. And so God is not going to create robots and say we better not create beings with free will because then there's going to be suffering in heaven, heaven and hell, the potential of that. We therefore better create beings that are robots. Well, what fellowship would God have with robots, which are not the source of their own action, which do not have the capacity to love because they are not the source of their own action, but receive their input from outside influences and creative Uh, technologies. God created us with the capacity to love, but also provided that he could assure destiny to his creation. If God created beings that he could not assure destiny to that would be everlasting and ultimate in fulfillment, that would imply that he was less than perfect, but he has created it so it is possible for us to enter into this as beings that have free will. I don't have time to get into all of this in depth. What I want to focus on is these two ultimate aspects of God's being of love, which is the holiness of God's love, first of all, out of which springs a love that is so great that God himself could actually humble himself more than you, the mere creature. Think of someone as great as the creator of the universe. Humbling himself more than you have been humbled, which is a mere creature. Suffering more than you've ever suffered as a mere creature. So that you could be reconciled to God so that his creation could have the choice to be reconciled to God, to become part of his corporate bride. In God's being of love, there was not merely the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ. But it was a reality in God's being before the world was even created. That is why it says in Revelations chapter 18 that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the world was even created. It was a reality. Part of the reason it was a reality is because God as the Father is beyond the time and space realm. And sees the end from the beginning and is the originator. Often we have people that claim we believe in three gods, such as the Muslims that would accuse us of that, which have a total misunderstanding of the reality of God. One of the names for God that is often used is Elohim, which means the Almighty's One. God is the Father in government, is transcended beyond the time and space realm and is the originator and sees the end from the beginning. As such, he is in personage beyond the time and space realm. If God could not be in conscious intelligence and personage beyond the time and space realm, he would not be able to rule beyond the time and space realm and therefore he would be less than Almighty, less than God. If God at the same time could not be in personage within the time and space realm, he would not be able to rule within the time and space realm or be almighty or God within his creation. And, as the Holy Spirit, God fills all things. And if God could not be in personage in omnipresence filling all things, in conscious intelligence entity, He would not be God. In order for God to be Almighty, He must be able to rule in actual intelligence conscious personage within the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space as the Father, in time and space as the Son, and filling all space as the Holy Spirit. The word Son basically means expression. And in Hebrews 1.3, the word of God makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father or the originator, who is God beyond the time and space realm, in the time and space realm personage. And so no one can say that God is almighty unless they know the God that is Elohim, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what I am sharing here in this first part of Psalms, chapter 19, verse 1 to 5, 1 to 6, is showing the brightness and the glory of God inhabiting his creation. As it says here, that he is like the sun. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmament is showing his handiwork. Day unto day is uttering speech. Night unto night is showing knowledge. There is no language, nor is there any voice where they are not heard. All of us observe the creation. We are hearing before us every day the reality of a creation around us. The beauty of the heavens that declare the glory of God. The firmament that shows the handiwork of God. There is none that is without excuse for coming to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, in this creation, it says in verse 4, the last part, God has set himself as the tabernacle, like the sun is a tabernacle in the midst of creation, is inhabiting and tabernacling in the creation. The creation receives its light from the natural sunlight. And what is causing this light and this energy and this power is the holiness of God and the grace of God that issues out of the holiness of God or the mercy and grace of God. That issues out of the holiness of God because within the being of God, there is this capacity to be able to forgive without violating the integrity of his being, which is only possible in that he would take upon himself a human body like man, and yet experienced temptation and lived totally in obedience against all temptation in union with his father. So that as it were, he took the first man, Adam, through his obedience and nailed him to death on the cross. So that we could be put into the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ who conquered the first Adam on the cross. This is described in Romans chapter 5. And so within the being of God, there is the ultimate positive symbol, the symbol of the cross. Did you know that the symbol of the cross has been before the time of Christ? The symbol of the cross was the last letter of the alphabet of almost all the civilizations in the area where Israel is and where all the Middle East is today. At that time, they all had the similar letters and similar language. And that language, the last letter, was the symbol just like the cross we see today. And it meant sign and symbol and signet. That's what that last letter meant. So for those that want to ban the crosses, you're wrong. The cross goes way back to the very beginning of time. In fact, it was in the very being of God from eternity past that he had not only the capacity but the reality within his being to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Therefore, it was always within God to have the power to forgive even before the time of Christ. And I could go into a lot of detail at all of this. I've written on it. I'm not going to get sidetracked. The issue here is that this symbol here is the symbol that speaks of God inhabiting his creation and of the being of God that is bright out of who he is in his perfection of love. And so then the last part of Psalms chapter 19 is speaking about the law of God. What is the law of God? It is the expression of God's heart and desire in the written letter. So it is the law of God is coming out of the being of God's love. And so it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It is perfect because God's being is perfect and what he has uttered in his word is therefore exactly perfect. And it results in what? It says here, converting or transforming our soul. The conversion of one's soul has been experienced or genuine spiritual rebirth from the time of Adam and Eve till now. It didn't just happen after Christ died on the cross. I'm not here to go into the details of the difference before the time of Christ and after, but Christ made it clear that they should have known before he died on the cross what it meant to be brought forth anew of the spirit or born again of the spirit of God. And indeed people experienced conversion because they acknowledged Elohim, the Almighty's one. And they recognize these two qualities in God, not from their intellect, but from their heart. When you come to that place, when you do not rebel against the consequences of God's holiness and the suffering we see around us in this world because of sin, and you acknowledge that the reason for God's holiness is that it is the very reason that protects against corruption and therefore holds unlimited power and life without the principle of corruption in it. And therefore, within that unlimited power in life, there can be total wholeness and total beauty and creativity that can ever be expanding and enlarging as time goes on. And so, within the being of God, we have such incredible wholeness. It is when we are freed by the conversion of our soul through receiving the word of God and allowing it to circumcise our heart from that state where the spirit is worshipping the consciousness of self, which is the soul. It takes the word of God to divide the spirit from the soul. How does that happen? It happens because in the word of God, there is what is described in Hebrews 4.12 as a two-edged sword. There it says, the word of God is as a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the thoughts and intents of the heart and even of the bone and the marrow. What is that two edged sword? It is what I've been talking about. It is the holiness of God's love or the integrity of His love, and it is the grace of God's love that springs out of the integrity of God's love in perfect atoning sacrifice. But its root is in the very quality of His being that has that reality and not merely the capacity, but beyond it, the very reality. And it is God's being. That is in his word, his being of love, that when we really see the holiness of God, when we read the word of God, we recognize our total guilt and unworthiness of the mercy of God. The genuine fear of God is a choice to recognize the reality of who God is in the perfection of his being, namely in his holiness and in his mercy. And I could go into a lot more to explain that when we genuinely appreciate the holiness of God and reverence it, rather than rebelling against the consequences that we see as a result of our rebellions against it, rebelling against the suffering that we see around us when we rather appreciate the holiness of god and then we recognize our guilt in the light of his holiness and our need for his mercy that is a choice to genuinely reverence god to genuinely fear god to genuinely recognize god as ultimately trustworthy and if you recognize that he's ultimately trustworthy you can only conclude that he is ultimately good for you're going to recognize that in such holiness that will not tolerate corruption, there must be goodness that is totally trustworthy because it will never become corrupt. And so if God is good and ultimately good, the conclusion can only be that this is ultimately manifest in the fact that he is able to provide mercy a way to have destiny and purpose, to be reconciled to God, to have eternal life. And so when we read the Word of God, it is out of the genuine recognition of God's Word and not rebelling against it and recognizing our need for the mercy of God that we come to receive the grace of God. Because we don't only recognize God as holy in a wrong way, like Cain did, who rebelled against the consequences of the curse and became alienated in his heart, so that God became, as it were, an enigma to him. God was afar off to him. So he developed a concept of God that was idolatrous, where God was somehow requiring a high standard, but he did not see that behind the holiness of God was the goodness of God because he began to rebel against what he saw in his heart of hearts. And so you have the idolatrous image of a God that is demanding submission and demanding standard and that demands performance to be appeased without the recognition of the goodness of God and his mercy, which is why Cain did not bring the right sacrifice before God. And I don't have time to get into the archaeological discoveries by David Roll, a renowned archaeologist that doesn't even call himself a Christian, where he shows the evidence of the first city after the flood of Rudu, giving evidence that they, it was the city of Cain before the flood that set up idolatrous worship. And then from Arudu, we go to the Earl of Chaldees, from which springs the moon god. The moon god then began to be worshipped in Babylon, and then it began from there to be worshipped among the Arabs, on that stone before Muhammad came, there was all these gods. And the, the top god was the moon god, which was called the god, meaning Allah. And they worshipped this god. Well, this is the god that came out of the idolatrous god that Cain formed out of the rebellion that was in his heart. That's the origination of that. A God where there's no understanding of his goodness in the light of his holiness, nor of the greatness of his mercy and of his perfect atoning sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God and so that creation can have destiny. When we choose to genuinely fear God, we will choose to receive the law of God in its holiness and allow it to work conviction in our heart unto repentance, like a sharp two-edged sword dividing the state of our soul from our spirit, which is in a state of worshipping our soul, which is a state of self-righteousness and pride. What does it take to break that state of pride? It takes recognizing that we are wrong. When we see that we are wrong, when we see that our soul is totally wrong, our spirit cannot worship our soul. Our pride is broken. We break down in tears before God and we cry out like the publican that Christ described who fell on his face and beat his breast and cried out loud and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said that he went home justified. He truly was circumcised in his heart. He truly turned from the depths of his heart on to God and was converted. And in Romans 10 where it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, it goes on to say there, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not just some intellectual assent. It's a deep turning from the heart out of a recognition from the heart of who God is. Not only from reading the word of God, but from what we observe around us in this world, we can come to the conclusion of what points to the reality of God like the prodigal son, who came to the end of himself and recognized the emptiness and the futility of his life without God, so that he loathed, trusting anyone anymore, because everyone became untrustworthy, including himself. All he wanted was what was real. Now he was hungry for what was ultimately trustworthy, so he was open to the only quality that could be ultimately trustworthy, which is the God of Israel, Elohim, Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there is conversion that happens and has happened from the beginning of time. Because from the beginning of time, they recognized that only God was the source of forgiveness. They recognized that the animal sacrifices could cleanse the physical realm, but they could not be the source of forgiveness. In fact, there's a verse that says, even if I give my body or the fruit of my womb as a sacrifice to God, it will not atone for my soul. So there was the recognition that it is only in God himself that there is ultimately perfect atoning sacrifice and forgiveness that only he has the ultimate quality to be able to forgive because he has that quality within his being as God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice Elohim well I've been preaching the word for a while already and I think I'll just stay with this passage. The statutes of the Lord, and we go on here. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on and so forth. And, and it goes on. And we go to verse 9, and it says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The right recognition of who God is is clean. And it will endure forever. When you really recognize God in the light of the, his being of holiness that is the quality that can hold ultimate, everlasting, unending power and authority, that doesn't dissipate into corruption, that humbles you. That brings you into utter awe and reverence. That keeps you from a state of pride. And so you're kept in the place where you stay clean and can endure forever because you've learned the secret of abiding in God Elohim and that secret is in the fear of God which is why in Isaiah when it speaks of the Messiah it says that the fear of the Lord is his treasure because it is the very secret of abiding in God yes even of the Son abiding in the Father which is the full expression of God and is God into the time and space realm. Yes, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're coming out of the perfection of His being. And I could go on, and I'd love to keep on sharing on this passage of Scripture. It says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. See, we cannot even understand the errors in our own life. We need to acknowledge that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, as it says in Jeremiah, I believe, chapter 17? Here it's basically saying the same thing. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. How many times do we presume to go ahead and do our own thing out of our own choice? We haven't asked God, we've just gone ahead. We, be, we haven't been conscious of being in union with him and we've gone ahead and done our own thing. We're to pray that God will deliver us from being this way because such presumptuousness is indicative of the fact that we haven't entered into a deep union with God. Where in everything we are conscious of doing all that we do out of God. Out of a relationship with our creator. Elohim. Jesus Christ. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. What protects us from entering into greater and greater transgression that can result in a transgression of eternal damnation is entering into a place where we do not initiate anything of ourselves but we learn to do everything out of relationship with God to do everything out of an act of conscious worship unto God no matter what task we are in whether we're doing the dishes we're singing in conscious of the Lord even when we're trying to solve a technical problem on the computer and we're tempted to pull our hair out, we turn to God and we say, God, help me. Help me to have peace right now. Show me what to do, grant me wisdom. Yes, we guard our heart, for out of it are the issues of life. That's why he says here, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. How many times we can allow the imaginations in our heart to become evil. We are to guard our heart, to be in that abiding fellowship with God, so that those imaginations die and have no ability to attach or magnetize to us anymore. And we, they are replaced with the thoughts and meditations that are from God and pleasing in his sight. I will continue now to uh, just briefly touch on a few more passages, but not really share from them, because I basically shared the passage of Psalms 19. I received Ephesians chapter 3, on Tuesday and I said this about verse 1 it should be for the cause of Elohim having a corporate bride to inhabit with the redeemed forever that we suffer all things such as being put in prison Paul said the reason that he was being put in prison was for this cause it was for his corporate bride to come forth around the world we are living in the time when that is about to be performed The Lord says in his word that in the last days praise will spring forth unto him among all nations as the buds from a garden. And I believe that is the fulfillment of John 17. That there will be congregations around the world that will come into such an incredible oneness and union, union as never before. They will no longer limit the headship of Christ from fully inhabiting the body. They will be open to allowing the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit the body corporately in local assemblies around the world and thus fulfill John 17, where Christ prayed that we would be one, even as he is one with the Father. Yes, the Lord says this also. He says, As truly as I live, says the Lord, All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And he says the zeal of the Lord will perform it. And it will be in the latter days. And there's other verses that talk about the last days. And his glory springing forth in congregations around the world. There's the description in Isaiah 24 of God's people glorifying Him with songs in the midst of the destruction of the world system as that great earthquake hits that causes the cities of the world to collapse and the Lord returns in His glory to set up His kingdom upon the earth. In this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is burdened. And he says that in earlier times, before Jesus Christ was incarnated, this mystery of God's corporate bride in Christ was not fully revealed. But now this has been revealed unto the true apostles and prophets of God by the Holy Spirit of God. And he goes on to say in verse 6 to 7, That for the Jews, this included the revelation of the corporate oneness in Elohim, including the Gentiles being partakers of the same corporate body and bride and of all the promises of God just as the Jews. And that is beginning to happen. And we know that it says that when there is this union of Israel coming to know the Messiah with the Gentiles, that it will be nothing less than bringing back the time when the Lord returns and there is the resurrection from the dead. What we preach is how unsearchable the everlasting riches, such as the deep, completely fulfilling fellowship are, that come out of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. He wanted all men to know what is the fellowship of the mystery. The mystery is speaking of a Jesus Christ around which comes the corporate bride. That is the ultimate consummate purpose of the reason all things exist. It is that God would bring forth a corporate bride that would rule throughout the universe without end. This involves making all people see what is the fellowship. It is by being manifest through us individually and corporately in its, in its exceeding greatness and ultimate glory. A mystery that is now revealed reveals fully who Jesus Christ is. Christ in us. The hope of glory. And that is what we should have a vision for as the body of Christ. I am writing a book. A book that came out of a far larger book that I will continue to write which is far more than just on the fear of God, it's on everything that comes out of that on the economy and everything and the pride of Christ that comes out of the fear of God and all that but I have a book in which I have done a detailed, I'm doing a detailed outline which is almost done on everything that should be in the corporate body of Christ so that the fullness of the headship of Christ is not limited from inhabiting that corporate local assembly and I'm looking forward to using it as a template for planning churches as a template for people that are even in denominational churches so that they can come out of the things that are limiting the fullness of the glory of God from inhabiting them as assembly that his mystery would come forth for the last days His bride would come forth. This is what will conquer the nations, will bring a nation of light to come forth within a nation of darkness, a community of light to come forth within a community of darkness, a city of light to come forth within a city of darkness. It is getting a hold of this vision and learning to let God build his church, cooperating with God's purpose, not getting in the way of God through our own self-sufficiencies. And so in this book, I give in-depth outline of everything possible within the corporate body, how the meetings should be, suggestions even as to the kind of meetings and when, and every detail, how is the greatest way that we can honor God even in doing communion? And what do we do to facilitate a oneness not only with God but with each other? How do we learn to love one another fervently, so that we, as it were, wash one another's feet with the word of God. In verses 10 to 12 of Ephesians 3, the secret of this ultimate fellowship that has been hidden in God reveals by the church that has become his corporate bride the greatness and multiplicity of the wisdom of God to the principalities and authorities in the heavens. In other words, when God brings forth his corporate bride around the world, will manifest to the principalities and powers that are throughout creation in the heavenlies such a wisdom of God that they will only be able to be filled with worship and adoration of God and will have no desire to be deceived into the presumption of independence and rebellion that brings destruction to themselves and the universe. This is a wonderful message that is being shared. And my prayer is that you would be touched to carry this vision, to seek God, to enter into being part of what he was wanting to do in these last days, to bring forth his corporate bride. I have a website at loverealized.com Where you can support what I am doing if you feel so led. Right now I have to do a lot of work on the internet to make money. In order to have resources to get myself, unfortunately I did get into some debt. To get out of debt, but also be in a position where I can go forth and begin to do this work in the last days with His people. Under the leading of the Holy Spirit to bring forth the glory of God in all the earth. I want to see our nation here where I live in Canada conquered, North America in the United States conquered. It starts when we as his people begin to have assemblies of worship around Christ, where we start in humility before God and the fear of God and the leadership gets on their faces and on their knees in outer awe of who God is until we are more conscious of God in Jesus Christ walking in our midst than we are of anything else. And out of that great humility will ascend great liberty and creativity and prophetic words and praise and songs to edify one another, to be knit together in love. Unto the riches of the full assurance of understanding, as it says in the word of God, even unto the acknowledgement of the mystery of the Father and the Son, which is the acknowledgement of that mystery of the union between the Father and the Son that is found in that secret of what is in that union, which is eating of his flesh and his blood, which is involved in the fear of God that perceives that ultimate quality within the being of God, in the holiness of God, and in the grace of God, in that ultimate negative and positive, as it were, that is the very consummate purpose of all existence. And that is that we are married to our Creator, individually and corporately, forever in a union of love without corruption this is the ultimate everlasting government that will be set upon the earth and that will conquer all other governments and this is the revolution that will end all revolutions it is the revolution of the love of God in its holiness and in its incredible grace that conquers all that is corrupt and evil and when god's people come into such a union in prayer where the glory of god can come down and inhabit that assembly i believe you will see what happened in the welsh revival repeated in a far greater way because this time it's not just going to be in one area of the world this time it will multiply around the world so that as the lord says as truly as i live says the lord all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the lord and praise will spring forth unto him as the buds of a garden around all the world. Thank you for listening to this message. Time is going fast. Deception is increasing. Iniquity is increasing fast. It is time to wake up and to become the bride of Christ, to become the army that is clothed in light, that is unapproachable because we are walking a life that is pure and holy in love before God and each other. Thank you for listening to this message.